0: the kind of worship that'll get your heart going there if you have cardiac problems we want to apologize in advance yeah, if you've got a heart condition that might have been a problem for you uh, hey welcome it's good to see everybody you guys think you've got it rough I got to talk for the next you got to follow that so uh, I hope all of you enjoyed your worship this is that fun moment in the service where we all come together So Cactus in Northridge, uh, as well as Chapel in our online community uh, that's been with us thus far, this is where we're all in the same room. So welcome as uh, we come together, the family of faith here at Scottsdale Bible Church. As we continue in our series uh, where we are looking at the appearances of Christ post-resurrection, coming out of the Easter season. And so as our series is appropriately called, When Jesus Appears, uh, we're gonna continue in that today with a really fun two verses. Uh, There are very few times in the Bible where I think it speaks as uh, specifically, it calls us to something so intentionally as these two verses, 30 and 31, at the end of chapter 20 uh, do today. But I want to start us off with uh, a movie. Uh, I'm going to describe a movie scene to you. I love movies. Uh, this is from the movie Moneyball. Now I want to disclaimer this just real quick. Some of you have seen this. Some of you haven't. All right. Uh, Moneyball is actually derived from a book called Moneyball, and it was it's a wonderful book. And but uh, it it very accurately and authentically depicts Major League Baseball. And for those of you who don't know this. Occasionally, Major League Baseball players use language that's pretty colorful. Some of you may not know that. Uh, and so there's some language in this movie. Please don't watch it and send me an email that says, my pastor told me to watch this. I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm just telling you this is what it talks about in the movie. So towards the end of the movie, uh, two of the main characters, Jonah Hill and Brad Pitt, are in a room. And they're sitting there, and uh, Billy Bean is Brad Pitt's character. And so Jonah Hill looks at him and he says, come, come with me, Billy, I want to show you something. So they go into the film room, a place where Jonah Hill spent many hours in the movie. And he's sitting there and he says, "Uh, Billy, this as you know, is our 240 pound catcher, Jeremy for the Visalia Oaks. Uh, And as you know, he is terrified to run to second base. And so as he's sitting there, he goes, pitcher's gonna start him off with a fastball and he's gonna take him to deep center field. Sure enough, here comes the pitch. Big old Jeremy takes a swing, ball explodes off the bat and away it goes. So he stops it about halfway down first base, and he says, now, Billy, Jeremy's going to do something that he never does. He's going to go for it. So he starts the film again, and as he rounds first base, his, what I imagine is like a size 14 cleat, catches the base, hits the ground, and he just starts to tumble, not so elegantly, towards second base in a barrel roll. And as this happens, it continues. It pans over to Brad Pitt, and Brad Pitt just very calmly goes, oh, they're laughing at him. And Jonah Hill's character looks at him and he says, that's right, they're laughing at him. And Jeremy's about to find out why. He says, what Jeremy doesn't know is the ball flew 60 feet over the center field fence. Says he hit a home run and he didn't even know it. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what I want you to hear today. What you believe dictates how you behave. If you believe you're in danger of being thrown out, you're gonna do what Jeremy did. You're gonna crawl on your hands and your knees as quickly as you can back and cling to first base for safety. If you know you hit a home run, you'll do what Jeremy did after he found that out, picked his 240-pound frame up and started to kind of bounce around the bases as even the opposing team slapped him on the rear and told him, good hit. See, if we apply this to what I want us to apply it to today, we can change the way we behave simply by changing what we believe. Before we do that, would you bow your heads and let me pray for us. So Lord, uh, my prayer today is, is as we come to this passage, these two verses that so beautifully and so simply call us to something, I, I just pray that you would work through me, Lord. I wanna get out of the way and just let you speak clearly, minister to the hearts of your people. Uh, anything of me that would get in the way, Lord, I just ask that you would remove that. And Lord, as we all come to this passage together, I just pray that you would lead us and guide us. Holy Spirit, we give you full permission to move in our midst. We pray this in your name, amen. All right, so let's take a look at it. Chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31. Uh, We are gonna look at this, it says here, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So right off the bat, we're gonna look at verse 30. Okay, verse 30 tells us something overtly and covertly, something explicit that it's gonna state, but something implicit that is right there underneath the surface. It tells us that many other signs were done in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. What's the explicit? This is not meant to be an exhaustive journal of every activity, movement, and thought of the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. That's not what it's meant to be. So if that's the overt, what's the covert? The implicit part of this, or the covert part of what's being said in verse 30 is every word, action, or movement of Jesus Christ that is included within this book is done with intentionality, It was with a point. It had a purpose. It's as if the author, after 20 chapters of his book that he has given tons of time and attention to that we know is God's holy word, he's standing there and saying all of this was for a point. And the stuff that I put in here was to make that point. The stuff that I left out, it wasn't making the point. I have taken all of the things that I need to to make this point. So you might ask, Rustin, what's the point? I'm so glad you asked that. Let's take a look at verse 31. Verse 31 says, but these, these are written so that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What's that mean for me? That by believing, you may have life in his name. It ain't complicated. It's not complex. It's very simple, and I'm gonna do everything in my power for the next 20 minutes to not make this any harder than it already is, but right off the bat, he's telling us he wrote these things so that we may believe. It's amazing. The Gospel of John starts with literally the words, in the beginning was the word, and he goes on to describe the word. What I want you to see today is that it's as if the author has been sitting there and going, Hey, in the beginning, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And then he did this, and then he did this. And he's been describing this story to us. And then, out of nowhere, at the very end, it's almost as if the literary eyes of our author turn and go, Do you get it? Do you hear the point? Do you understand why? And he doesn't even leave it up to us to decide that. He goes, here's why I've done this. In movies, they call this breaking the fourth wall. And here's what they mean by that. Anytime you're looking at a scene in a movie, it's effectively got three walls. It's got two side walls and the back wall. And you, as the audience, are effectively peering through that front or fourth wall. Every once in a while, one of the characters who will be acting in something, this happens in TV shows from time to time and different things like that, the the character will turn and do what they tell actors never to do, which is, don't look in the camera. And one of the actors will turn and by doing so, they are eye to eye with you and it's called breaking the fourth wall. John in this gospel is breaking the fourth wall when he looks at you and says, but these things were written so that you, would believe. He is turning his attention from telling the story to telling you the point of the story and is going to drive home his point. But he starts in chapter one and what I want you to see is once he says he wants you to believe, the purposes that you would believe, you can literally take common sense steps to start going, believe in what? Again, that's a good follow-up question. He says he wants you to believe. The point of these previous 20 chapters, and by the way, about six years worth of on and off preaching in our church is when we started this. I preached my very first sermon in the worship center in John chapter three. It's been a minute, all right? It's been about six years, and we've taken this whole time, and John's sitting here and going, listen, I want you all of that for a purpose, that you would believe. Believe what? Believe two things, that he is the Christ And the Son of God. Uh, Here's the deal with Jesus Christ. So many times we miss or we can forget because we say it so often in church. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Okay? It's a title. He is the Messiah, The anointed one of God. That's what it means for him to be the Christ. It's not as if you were to say, hey, honey, let's have the Christs over for dinner tonight. That's not what the Bible's pointing us to. It's pointing us to something magnificent. He is the long-awaited figure that Israel has been waiting for. At the very beginning of the gospel, go all the way back to chapter one, part of my intention today is to show you how beautiful this piece of literature really is in the fact that it is so interconnected in what it's doing. It is framed up beautifully. With where it starts in chapter one, it poses a question with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is this wild figure who's just out in the wilderness. He's clothed in camel hair. He's eaten wild honey and locusts, and he has a prolific ministry. And in the Middle East in the first century, if you had a powerful and prolific ministry, you always got the attention of the Jews. So what you could count on is they were going to come and check you out and see what you were up to, and that's exactly what happened with John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been foretold going all the way back to the Old Testament literature. If you go back into the old testament it talks about the one crying out in the desert the one who would pave the way for the messiah the christ the anointed one of god so if you go to chapter one of this gospel in verse 20 here come the jews the priests and the levites come and they ask john a very simple question because he's out there baptizing and he's out there teaching who are you And in a beautiful way, this gospel starts by raising a question. He says, and he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. I think we've got it up here. Let's throw it up here real quick. He says, I am not the Christ. (sighs) We don't have it. All right, we're moving on. He says, I am not the Christ. What's happening in chapter one? He is raising the point of the Christ. He's raising the topic. And he's saying, this is something that I want you to think about. It's not his last name. It's one of those things that he's sitting back and saying, this is a title that Jesus has come to earth to fill, something that earth has been in need of from the very beginning when sin entered its presence. The point of Jesus being the Christ is that he came with special and specific purpose, Now, let's take a look at a quote real quick. This quote is beautiful. It says this, it's from my favorite commentary on the book of John. It says, the entire gospel has been explaining how Jesus alone fulfills the role of the Christ, the one sent by God to do his work and to make him known. As the Christ, Jesus is intimately related to everything that God does, all the plans of God, past, present, and future are made manifest in the work of Christ. The Christ, the being that would fulfill that place is intimately related to everything about God. I was sitting there in seminary, uh, I it was probably 2000, I don't know, 11, 12. And I'm sitting there in seminary and I'm doing all of these classes, all right? It was like drinking from a fire hydrant. So, I'm absorbing everything I can, but this particular part of the study that I was in at the time was looking at secular documents, meaning non biblical documents, that were writing to the historicity of Jesus. So, they were writing to the point that Jesus, a man, came, lived, and was killed by the Romans. Okay? What they would go on from there to say is when he was killed, those who believe in him believe that he was raised from the dead. So I'm reading this stuff, and one of my dear friends, who wasn't a believer, was coming over that day. I think we're gonna go play golf or something. So I I was up early, I was reading and doing studying for school, and I'd probably had about nine cups of coffee, and this friend of mine, I'm all amped up, is about to hit my patio, and he's an intellectual, super smart guy, and so I was like, I'm gonna tell him this. And in my head, because I tend to get ahead of myself, I know that shocks a lot of you guys. I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is gonna blow him away. This is gonna be all that he, oh my gosh, you're telling me even secular books, non-biblical books talk about Jesus? This is a no-brainer, I'm in. Russ, would you pray with me right now? So he hits my patio and I'm all caffeinated and amped up and as we're sitting there, I look at him and I go, hey bro, did you know that even secular history books point to the fact that Jesus Christ was a person who walked the earth? This is what he said to me. He said, Rustin, what the history books point to is that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure. Jesus being the Christ is an entirely different issue altogether. Did not expect that, by the way. (laughs) That was not what I was ready for. Uh, As my jaw hit the floor and I started to scoop it back up, you know what I realized today? He's absolutely right. The point of the book of John is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you understand? Most of the world will tell you, yeah, a man named Jesus lived. It doesn't mean that they believe he was the Christ. The question posed to you after 20 chapters of reading the Gospel of John is that you would believe that he is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah who came to fulfill. All the prophecies, leaving none unchecked, leaving a, leaving a sinless life, dying on a cross for your sins. That what it's, that's what it means to be the Christ, the Savior of God's people. So, do you believe he was a historical figure, or do you believe that he was the Christ? The second title that we're asked to believe is that he was the Son of God. And in order to fully realize the impact of the statement with context in this gospel, we have to go all the way back to the beginning where it tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, the reality, one of the things that separates us from some of the other religions that will even acknowledge Jesus is that we acknowledge that he is the Son, and as the Son, he was God, eternally existing as a part of the Trinity one of the things that other religions will do, one in particular, is it will sort of look over at Christ and say, Well, he was just like us. He was a son of God, and we're sons and daughters of God. So, therefore, here we go. We're good. Let's take a look at another quote. Same exact commentary, but it's flipped the phrase saying now, as the Son, Jesus is intimately related to everything that God does. As the Christ, he's intimately related to everything that God does. As the Son, he is intimately related to everything that God does. In theological discussions, what we talk about is we talk about the reality that what is shared within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing as distinct persons, and yet there is one God, what is shared among the Trinity is a nature or an essence. The Greek word is ousia. They share something. And yet there is one God and they are distinct. Each one fully God and there is one God. Good luck figuring out the math on that one. The difference between us and the Christ, the son of God, is that he is the only son, the only begotten. Uh, This commentary uses the word unique son because what is being spoken about in the original language is something that sets him apart from all others because he is supreme in his sonship. It is different than what we are adopted into. You see, we are adopted, grafted in. He is eternally existing in. His sonship is different than ours and it vastly sets him apart from the rest of us as a part of the family looking to the son to do what only the son can do. The book of Hebrews chapter one talks about the son this way, says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things You see, what's being called out in Hebrews is exactly what's spoken about in the beginning of John. He is supreme. He is different than you and I. And what this book is asking us to believe is not just that he is the Christ and the anointed one, but that he is the eternally existent, only begotten son of the God of the universe, and he's been there forever. So once you get to what you are supposed to believe, the point of this book, that he is the Christ and the son, you might ask yourself the question, so what? So what? So this is written, 20 chapters. We've gotten to this last couple of verses, and I'm supposed to believe two things. What do I do with those two things? And that by believing you may have life in his name. See, there's something on the other side of these beliefs that I will point you towards today you are longing for. You may ask the question a little bit of, okay, Because if you're sitting in this room today and all of this is foreign, you've never really thought about this before, then what I would say is this, Uh, why do I need life would be a great question. Why do I need life? I'm in this room or I'm online. I'm listening to you today and, and I'm using my five senses. I'm hearing you. I can, you know, experience all of what's going on around me. What is it that's going on? Why do I need life? I already possess life. The exact same question, again, I want to show you today how this entire gospel works so perfectly together. It's a literary masterpiece. Uh, Chapter three, that same question is asked. It's a man named Nicodemus. He's extremely smart. And he comes to Jesus, and he looks at him, and he says, hey, how do I I get eternal life? Jesus looks at him and says, you have to be born again. Nicodemus goes, like, re-enter the womb? He goes literal on this thing, and he's like, this seems weird, I I don't want to do that. And he goes, no, it's, it's not like that. You don't need to be born again. You need to be born anew. You need, Nicodemus, a new birth. You need a spiritual birth. What the book of John is pointing us to today, at the very end, making its purpose statement, it's saying the point of your belief that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, is that you may, by believing, have life. What I'll tell you is, The reason that life is so important is because it is an otherly life. It is not a physical life here on earth. It is to be brought to a new life, to a spiritual life. One that prior to these beliefs, the Bible's saying you are not in possession of. You need to be brought to life spiritually. We need a birth into this new spiritual life. And this spiritual life is described in this book two ways. It's described as eternal. It is different than what is going on here on Earth. Our lives here on Earth are falling apart, okay? Every year, our bodies kinda tend to decay a little bit more and a little bit more. Uh, The things on Earth, there is nothing, I don't care what the object is that isn't in a depreciating state, of some kind. Just give it enough time it'll all fall apart. What this life is, this spiritual life, it transcends the brokenness of earth and it points us into a direction of a spiritual place that is absolutely imperishable, undefiled and unfading. It's eternal. The other way that this is described is like this. It's in John 10:10. Again, this whole gospel works together. It's described as abundant. Uh, This is what John 10.10 says. It basically takes the entire Christian life and it puts it into one verse. Jesus is speaking and he says, the enemy came to steal, to kill, and destroy. It's one activity. He wants to take away from and but. This is the best but in the Bible. You ready? Best but in the Bible says this. The enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that you might have life and have it in abundance. That is great news. Who's ever been to Thanksgiving? Come on. Let's interact, right? Let's have a moment, you guys still listening? What's Thanksgiving? You eat, you eat, you eat, you eat again. You're looking there the next day and you're like, you know what, we're going over to so-and-so's house to sort of celebrate again, let's bring pies. Dumbest thing we do, they already got pies. Everybody's got pies, right? You're sitting around like late November and you're like, we still have pies. This is gonna get weird you have an abundance of food. You have more than you can consume. You cannot consume all the food you have. Jesus is saying that about life. I want you to have a life that can't be stolen, killed, or destroyed. I want you to have abundance, more life than you can consume, spiritual life. Here's what I'll submit to you. This is the rest of our time today. Buckle up, because it's gonna get heated here. You need that. I need that. Do you know why you need spiritual life? So that you can start leaving this life behind. Because our life here on earth is disappointing us. Our life here on earth is leaving us empty. It's creating hopelessness. We're scrambling to try and get to the top of every ladder we can put our feet on. And we get to the top of them and they leave us empty. I don't have a slide for this one because it was in my morning reading uh, this morning, but it comes from uh, Stephen Freeman. He's an orthodox priest that I read from time to time with a couple of buddies. That makes me sound super smart. This was not my idea. People smarter than me send me stuff like this. So here's what Stephen Freeman has to say. He's talking about the realities that we all live in where life in so many ways, uh, we tend to scramble to the top of things. He's talking about the corporate ladder in this experience. And this is what he has to say about our climb. He says, by its very name, this peak experience is held out as a desirable goal. But we have this, that strange reality that those at the top are rarely personalities that we would want to nurture in our children. There is nothing at the pinnacle uh, that offers anything other than money and power, neither of which is beneficial to the soul. <laughs> the reality is this. Life here on earth so many times points us in a direction that isn't beneficial to the soul. It's leaving us hopeless, it's killing us. Jesus makes a statement in Matthew 11, it's right at the end of the chapter, and it is so good, here's what he says. He looks at the audience and he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So many times people read that verse and they go, so if I'm gonna be with Jesus, I gotta wear a yoke? I don't want a yoke. I don't want to be yoked up. I'm yokeless, bro. I'm good to go. Here's the truth. If you're living life on earth, you're yoked. I'm describing it in that quote. I'm telling you about it in all of these different places where we try and strive to fill our hearts with something here on earth, and then we get there and we find out it ain't working. And Jesus goes, you know that yoke that keeps producing the disappointment, the hopelessness? What I'm trying to give you is a life I'm trying to give you something other than what's going on here on earth. And I'm telling you that that yoke is easy. That burden is lighter than the one that you've got. Anybody hungry for that? Because that's what we're going for. One person in the back is super excited. They clapped about that. (laughs) The world is hard and heavy. Jesus' yoke is easy and light. See, this whole last verse is, is talking to us about what I want to describe to you as where's your hope? You're in one of two categories today. You're either sitting here and you're hearing about this for the very first time and you're going, you know what? Now that he mentions it, I thought I was yokeless. I'm totally yoked. I I don't have any of this life that you're talking about. It, then here's the deal. We, we want to help you with that. That's why this church exists to continue to help people get God, get real about their life, and get out there and help others. So the reality is, hope is a challenging thing, and if you don't have any today because you're sitting back going, my life is as good as my earthly existence, then I wanna tell you there's a better place to put your hope than here on earth, okay? And the life that Jesus is describing is a powerful one that can be lived out simply by believing that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing you start to experience this life, and we wanna walk with you through that. But I wanna talk to my brothers and sisters in Christ for just a minute here. Those of you who call Jesus your Lord and Savior, I wanna describe to you a process that can happen in our lives, because we can believe in these things, we can call him Christ, we can call him the Son of God, and our eternal salvation is secure, but guess what we start to do? We start to go, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to bring my hope back here. Salvation's still secure, But I'm gonna take my hope, and I'm gonna speak real personally here for just a minute. I can take my hope back from heaven, and I can place it, and this is where I do it most often, on my marriage. And I can sit there with my sweet wife, Jamie, and I can put my hope on her, on our marriage, or the activities of our marriage. I can put my hope there. Do you know what she'll describe to me when that's happening? Feels like a lot of pressure. Feels really overwhelming. I feel like I'm not just trying to, to kind of love you, but I'm trying to, to fill you and your heart. And you know what I have to do? I have to repent. <laughs> hey, babe, I'm so sorry. The reality is I'm, I'm trying to put you in a place that only Jesus belongs. I'm trying to get infinite out of a finite person. And I start to take my hope back because guess what? Anything on earth that you put your hope on, your hope is too heavy and it will crush it. The fastest way for you to lose whatever it is that you're hoping into is to put your eternal hope on it. It will destroy it. You can do it with a relationship with a spouse. You can do it with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. If you are that person who constantly people are going, I just, it's you're just, oh, ha, ah, oh. You're probably taking an eternal hope and trying to put it on a temporal person. And they're going, I can't do that. Whether they know Jesus or not, whether you know Jesus or not, there's an eternal hope in you. And if you put that hope on earthly things, it will destroy it. Do the same thing with your kids. Put your hope that only Jesus was meant to fulfill on the performance of your children and just know that they will constantly feel that even if they can't describe it and at some point they will resent you for it. You wanna get your relationship with your kids back? Put your hope where it belongs. Put it in heaven. What the book of 1 Peter says is that in heaven There is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. Keep your hope with your life, and don't let them get mixed up, so that you can all of a sudden, you want all your things back? Keep your hope there, and now your relationship with your kids doesn't need to fill your heart. It can just be a relationship. You can be their parent, because you don't need them to all of a sudden fill your heart anymore. You can be a sacrificial husband or wife because you can actually serve someone. You're not trying to extract infinite and eternal hope from a finite person. You try to do the same thing with chemicals? I got a PhD in that one. I can land in AA quicker than anything. Why? Because I'm trying to cope with an earthly chemical and I'm putting my hope in it. That's how you land at AA at 27 years old. You can do the same thing with narcotics. You can do the same thing with food. Our country's eating itself to death. Why? Because it's trying to get eternal hope out of a finite calorie. And it's happening to all of us. And here's the deal, gang. I'm not telling you this isn't happening and it's not okay when it happens. I'm just telling you when it happens, it will kill you. When it happens, don't dive into shame. Just simply go, oh, guess what? We found a place where a little more of my hope was sitting here on earth. Take it back, put it in heaven, and know that he loves you. Don't let shame extend the process. Just move out of it because that's what he died for. And this verse is saying he came that you would believe, that you would believe he's the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you would have a life that is easy. Life's still hard on earth, but what Jesus is saying is, listen, life's hard on earth whether you like it or not. I can actually lighten it by putting your hope where it belongs, and now you can experience these things without them absolutely taking you apart. You see now, if we go back to our original quote, let's go back to our premise for the day, what you believe dictates how you behave. If you believe he's the Christ and the son and you all of a sudden put your eternal hope there instead of trying to keep an eternal in the temporal where it will never equate, your life starts to fall apart. One of the best examples of this, what does this type of Christianity look like is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had this unbelievable ministry. In the midst of his unbelievable ministry, he was getting his teeth kicked in. By the way, if you wanna do anything meaningful for the Lord, here's what I'd tell you. It's gonna be hard. Paul's ministry was an absolute, just disaster in the world's climbing the ladder view. And yet Paul gets to a point where he writes in Philippians 1, 21, he says, "For uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's what he follows that up with. He follows that up with basically kind of describing, listen, if I die, I go to be where my hope is. I'm with Jesus. If you leave me here, that means fruitful ministry. Imagine for just a minute, we'll have a screw tape letter type moment here, okay? Imagine for just a minute you're Satan trying to take that guy apart. Oh, kill him. Well, that's what he wants. He'll go to be with Jesus. Wow, fine, leave him here. What's Paul say to Satan? yeah, go ahead and just leave me here. Watch me mess your kingdom up. I'm going to plant churches. I'm going to raise up elders. I'm going to disciple people. I'm going to teach them that the word is imperative. I'm going to continue to point them towards Jesus. Yeah, you go right ahead and leave me here and watch what I do to your plan, Satan. That is an unstoppable Christian. What Paul understood was there is nothing here on earth that will be as good as heaven. So, Kill me and I'll go there. Leave me and I'll mess up a demonic kingdom. I will continue to spread the good news of Jesus Christ as long as I'm alive. And no matter what happened in his time here on earth, he didn't care. He kept pressing forward because he believed he was the Christ. He believed he was the son. And by believing he had a life that did not connect his hope to the earthly. Let's go back to our opening example. What do our lives look like? What does it look like, gang? Are you the 240 pound catcher that is crawling on his hands and knees back to a safe life at first base? Or are you gleefully skipping around the bases because, get this, somebody else hit a home run in your name. You didn't even hit the home run. You left home plate on a pass because of the blood of Jesus Christ and our only job now is to act like it. And it's not gonna be the kind of thing where it's always easy. That's why I love what our church has laid out in get God, get real. Hey, when it's hard, guess what? There's days, I'm gonna mix my sports analogies here for a minute. One of my favorite phrases is, some days you're just falling forward, right? As a football player, if you get hit and you can just fall forward, at least you pick up a yard, okay? Man, there's some days where I didn't get the first down, I'm just falling forward. There's other days where I'm all over the place, I feel shifty. But whatever day you're having, our goal here at Scottsdale Bible is to tell you, once you get God, now our job is to help you get real and talk about when it's hard and and talk about when it's awesome. Sorrow or celebrate. On days where you're falling forward, we wanna fall with you. On days where you're sprinting, we wanna run. And we're all in different seasons and we're all gonna have both. But the point that the gospel of John really falls into, Jamie's gonna talk about chapter 21 for like three weeks with Christ's high priestly prayer. But what's happening right now is that John has framed this whole thing up to go, do you get it? Do you understand? A home run was hit in your name. Your job now is to to just, hey, run, walk, keep moving. But the world should look at you and see, even when difficult things happen, your hope is somewhere else. And this message that John has been giving us for 20 chapters is designed to help you see that the burden of Christ is easier than the world's, right? His yoke is far lighter than the one that we can all carry, either because we've never heard the message before or because we've taken hope back and put it in the world where it doesn't belong. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? So Lord, as we walk this out today, I know that this is a a difficult pill to swallow. I know some of the toughest times in my life have been the times where I find myself in that place yet again where my hope is not in you and I have to peel it away from the earthly things and I have to put it back in heaven. Sometimes that leaves me uncomfortable here. But those difficulties are here whether I'm hoping in you or not. And anytime time I peel my hope away from earthly things and place them back with you, there is always more peace than when I try to do it on my own. Uh, Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters in Christ today who may be hearing this message with a little bit of a heavy heart I, that resonates with me. Like I said, those are hard times for me too, but that you would press them forward into getting real with others, talking about how this is difficult and moving to a flourishing season that where their hope is somewhere else regardless of what their circumstances are. And for those who are hearing this message for the very first time today, that there is hope outside of earthly things, that for the places where the earth has left them worn out, where that heavy and hard yoke that they've been walking in has just worn them to pieces, that you would give them even a sweet, Early aroma of what your yoke is like, that it is relationship, it is friendship, it is walking difficult things out with you instead of alone. Lord, you came to set captives free. And so today, Lord, we continue to point everyone towards the good news of who you are. We love you. We say this in your name. Amen.